Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right, welcome to Chief Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I'm Todd Hagopian, and we have a great Ladies of Liberty episode for you today. We have Hannah Cox, libertarian commentator in the house. Hannah, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I'm Hannah Cox. I am a libertarian, conservative, commentator, writer, activist, and I've been working in politics full-time since 2016, but kind of started dipping my toe in the water back around 2012, 2013, when I was in the music industry originally. Uh, currently, I am the senior national manager of an organization called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. I'm also a fellow for the Foundation on Economic Education, and I'm a contributor for Newsmax and the um, Washington Examiner. And I just launched my own show called Base, which is a vodcast available on YouTube and Facebook, Spotify and iTunes, where we're doing a monthly episode digging into a big problem facing society every uh, month and just trying to figure out what the initial policies and economics were that got us to the problem in the first place. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I've uh, watched your podcast and definitely want to get into that and the other stuff you mentioned here more. How about we, um, first of all, Kevin and I are huge fans. So thank you again for coming thank on. You. This is going to be a great episode. Um, how about we roll it back a little bit and start talking about where you came from and what that journey to liberty looked like? How did you uh, wind up sitting here today with all this stuff that you just mentioned? Yeah, you know, it's funny, I often get stopped in public when I'm having conversations and people will say, are you a lawyer? Or what do you do? And how did you get in this path? You sound like you have really, you know, interesting, weird work. <laughs> and I always joke that like, I could never have actually designed the pathway I ended up taking. So it was very providential, I think. But I went to school to be in the music industry. There's a big school in Nashville called Belmont University. It's right on Music Row. They've had a ton of really famous country celebrities that have graduated from there. And so it's kind of a feeder for that industry and has a ton of opportunities. They had a really unique major where you could get a business degree, but specialize in the music industry and intern on Music Row. And so that was what I did. Um, I was only really moderately involved with politics. I grew up in a, in a traditional Republican household. We probably did talk about politics more than most people's families. I have parents that are pretty engaged, um, but I was kind of a traditional kid. I just sort of believed what my parents believed. And so I was pretty authoritarian, kind of leaned more in like the Bush Rubio camp. I was, I always say I was a happy little neocon. I thought John McCain was awesome in 2008. I remember uh, Belmont actually hosted a debate between McCain and Obama. And I was very much on the McCain side and just thought Obama was going to be like the worst thing ever. And so that was where I was. And, and past that, I wasn't really somebody who was super informed or engaged. And um, that didn't change for a while. I did work in the music industry. I had a lot of success there. Um, but by the time I graduated, I really knew I didn't want to stay in that industry. I wasn't very happy within it. Didn't find a lot of meaning or purpose. And I knew I was going to switch career paths. I just wasn't sure what. I was kind of looking at going to law school or maybe going back for some kind of psychological work. Um, I was very passionate about mental health issues all along the course. And what I ended up doing was I found this Second Amendment group in Tennessee um, that was working sort of to the right of the NRA. And it was something I could do part-time and it was something I could do alongside an attorney. And so I thought this is a great way to see if I actually like practicing the law, if this is something I really want to go back to school for and I can do it while I'm still working in the music industry. So I took that on 
And what I ended up finding was I really fell in love with the policy aspects. I didn't really like what the attorney's job was in the day-to-day of it, but I loved the outreach. I loved communicating with people. I loved educating and lobbying and really trying to move policy forward. Um, But also while I was working there, it was really my first up close exposure to people in the Tea Party and Republican movement outside my family. Um, and so I, I, I came up against some things that were being said and things that were happening that just totally went against what my core beliefs were. Um, I saw a lot of things that were anti-immigrant, heard a lot of things that were anti-Muslim, some really big government ideas as far as what to do about those things. And it, it kind of made me throw up my hands and be like, hang on, I don't believe any of this. If this is what Republicanism is, then I'm not on board. And so it was a really good thing for me. It pushed me to go and actually do my homework and do my research and figure out what precisely I believed and why I believed it. And so I found The Law by Frederic Bastiat. It was really fundamental for me. It was the first thing I ever read that made me feel like, oh, maybe I can understand economics. Maybe this isn't over my head. And then I started reading more and getting into Hayek and getting into Friedman and other scholars and and that vein of thinking. And, And it really was something that helped me establish what I believed, why I believed it, apart from a political party. And so um, at that point, I decided I wanted to be in politics, but I had the luxury of having a good job in the music industry. I wanted to take my time and and make sure it was the right fit. I wasn't going to just go work for anybody or anything just to have a a role in the movement. So I took about two years, did a ton of work um, on the side and pro bono. I did some lobbying for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, continued to be really passionate about finding free market solutions for those issues. I started a millennial nonprofit and blog called My Justice, where we were trying to elevate the voices of liberty-leaning millennials and trying to help them get a foot in the door in the political sector. I worked on a couple campaigns um, and as a whole, just tried to educate myself about the different uh, policy positions. And eventually in 2016, I ended up moving over into politics full-time, took my first full-time job uh, for a free market think tank in Tennessee called the Beacon Center. And so that was kind of my, my journey. Um, it was a bit longer and a bit more winding than I think a lot of people's is when they go into politics, but it was very informative. It really helped me um, figure out where I stood. And I think that it better positioned me to actually enter the, the field full time. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, um, and I had a, a similar one that took probably six or seven years before I went from A to B. Uh, and that was interesting, you talking about Belmont University, because in one of your podcasts, you mentioned that. So then I looked up the university and it, and it was a music university and I was confused. So now, <laughs> now it all, <laughs> pulls all ties together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so very interesting, though, how you kind of got yourself into politics and learning the economics really through your own research uh, rather than through uh, research inside of a school, university program, or something like that. Um, Now that you've gotten yourself into the movement, uh, and it sounds like that happened more or less officially four or five years ago, um, what have you done since you've been inside the movement? Well, I I did um, enter at a very weird time. So I went full-time January of 2016. That was right before Trump clinched the nomination for the GOP. And so it was was an interesting time to enter politics. And I have to say, I was a bit green and naive in 2016. I really thought 
like genuinely within my bones felt that we were about to have this great liberty movement, like this huge, you know, pushback and swing in the opposite direction of what the Obama administration had been for the last eight years. I thought Rand Paul was a certainty to win the nomination. And I just really felt like we were about to rise up. You know, it was kind of at the height of the liberty movement. You had Justin Mosh, you had Thomas Massey, and all these people that were really making names for themselves. And I just so wanted to be a part of that. And so I was, I was thrilled. I took my first job with this free market think tank, which, you know, was just my dream job. Um, that I wanted to work for. And I was so excited to get stuff done. And then within a month, like things just started falling apart. Rand dropped out, <laughs> Trump got the nomination and I was just really dismayed about what was happening. So it's been an interesting ride for the past couple of years. It's been, um, you know, working in politics versus what I was before, which was somebody who worked in the music industry and had a lot of political opinions. It's quite different to navigate that, especially when you are opposed to the leader of the right-wing movement at the time. And, you know, with with Trump more so than any other president in my lifetime, it's definitely been a bit of a cult of personality where people who spoke out against him or who weren't supportive of him were often pushed outside of the movement, pushed outside of their jobs. Um, and so that's been a bit difficult to navigate, but I've been able to do it. been very fortunate to have the employers and work where I've worked. And I think I've been able to, um, to sort of keep a foot in both worlds where I do um, have a lot of affection for conservatives and, and really do believe in um, what I see as being the origins of conservatism, which was to conserve the foundations that we were built upon to protect classical liberal ideas. Um, but, you know, I've really seen the conservative movement torn apart in the past four years, and that's pushed me further and further into more of the libertarian sector and, and trying to figure out, you know, where you belong. But I think that's common for a lot of people. I think a lot of people feel quite politically homeless these days. They don't really know where they fit, and it's a bit difficult to know how to affect change when you don't have a team that you're fighting on. Um, and so my strategy for that has been to focus on policy, right? And I think as long as you're focusing on policy, there's still a lot that can be accomplished. There's still really great bipartisan action happening at the state level. We've been really effective at getting some cool reforms through that actually do improve people's lives and have largely, you know, I've been able to stay out of the, the actual politics of it and out of the federal aspect of it and focus on the policy and get things done. So for the first two and a half years when I was full-time, I, I did work for the Beacon Center of Tennessee. I was their director of outreach. And so I was sort of the liaison between the policies that we were hoping to push and the people of the Tennessee. Um, Tennessee. And so I was going out to speak across the state. I was educating them on the policies we were hoping to see um, succeed and, and why those were important. And, and sometimes those were red meat issues like tax reforms, but other times there was a bit more of a lift, you know, when we were trying to pass things like occupational licensing reform or criminal justice reform, um, or even school choice. Some of these policies were pretty new to people on the right. And so there was some work to be done to help explain to them why this was a good idea, why this was free market and limited government and why they needed to get behind these policies. And then I would help build coalitions, um, organize people to try to go in and mobilize at the state capitol and work with their legislators to actually pass those bills. Um, we'd help prepare people to give testimony and hearings. We would produce videos to tell the stories of people who were impacted by these policies to help educate more Tennesseans online. Um, so there was kind of a new media approach that we took with it. And then on the other side of the work, we also had a pro bono litigation institution where we took on uh, cases of people whose economic liberty was being infringed upon by the government. So I was very involved in that process, helping to weed through our case inquiries and decide which cases had merit, which ones were um, issues that we would want to take on, and then helping to prepare those plaintiffs for a public interest uh, lawsuit against the government. So we were doing a wide range of issues. I mentioned a few of them. Uh, we also did some things around corporate welfare. Uh, we did a lot of property rights defense. We 
we got very involved with standing to um, protect Airbnb and Airbnb um, users when the city was trying to shut them down at the behest of the hotel lobby. So we really had a wide range of things we worked on and, and it was a it was a great time. Um, simultaneously, while I was doing that, I also on the side was running a coalition called the Tennessee Alliance for the Severe Mental Illness Exclusion, TASME for short, because that's a mouthful. Um, and TASME's goal was to pass an exclusion from the death penalty for people with severe mental illness. And that was something I continue um, to be passionate about is just the ways that our public policies affect people with mental illness and our lack of free market people really coming in and advocating. Um, and, and a lot of people, I think, believe that we don't use the death penalty against people with mental illness, which nothing could be further from the truth. We actually have no protection whatsoever in place um, to ensure that we don't. The only thing we really have is the not guilty by reason of insanity defense um, but that's very rarely used. And the reasons for that is it's, it's quite difficult to meet. In most states, you have to show that a person um, did not know the difference in right and wrong in order to even have a, a shot at seeking that defense. And the reality is, is, is most people with severe mental illness or psychosis know the difference in right and wrong. They're acting in the throes of psychosis. So they think they're acting in self-defense. They think they're fighting the devil. They think they're being attacked by aliens. They're sort of telling what they think in, the, in that moment. So it, it doesn't actually really apply to them. Um, and then we do have an uh, intellectual disability exclusion. But again, that really comes down to whether or not a person has a certain IQ in most states. And most people with severe mental illnesses tend to have very high IQ. So um, we really don't have protections. And we see a large percentage of death rows in this country are people with very severe illnesses. And so um, I was doing that uh, for two years on the side. It was a lot, it was a lot going on, it was very busy. And about two and a half years ago, um, there was a role that opened up at the national level with conservatives concerned about the death penalty, which was a group that I worked alongside of uh, with TASME. And so I knew some of their state coordinators. I knew my predecessor who had been in the national role. And so when it opened up, it was just something I felt very strongly about stepping into. I wanted to do big structural criminal justice reform. And, and while there's a lot of criminal justice reform going on, on the right, and I commend it, and it's been successful largely, it has mostly focused on things like reentry and workforce development, um, things that are needed, but I think things that are really addressing symptoms of the problem and not the problem itself. And the problem is our actual approaches to violence, what we do to try to prevent violence, what we do to try to cure it when it has occurred. Um, and I think that our system gets it totally, utterly, utterly wrong. And until we really address some of these underlying issues, we're not going to put a dent in mass incarceration. We're not going to actually improve community safety. And I just don't see that happening um, with a lot of the groups that do criminal justice reform. And, and my organization is, is unique in that. They really are focused on structural big change. So I seize that opportunity. I've been in that role for about two and a half years. We've had great success. We have overturned the death penalty in a state each of those two years. So last year we overturned it in New Hampshire. Uh, we actually overrode a Republican governor's veto with significant Republican support to do so. Um, and then this year, Year, right before the shutdown started, we passed it in Colorado. So it's been going very well. We see a tidal wave of uh, change in this in this issue with people really starting to recognize the inherent flaws in the system, people wanting to get active, people working across the aisle. We've had 10 to 11 states with Republican-sponsored bills to repeal the death penalty each of the two, past two years. Um, about 60 lawmakers signed on to sponsor those that are Republicans when hundreds of others have voted in favor of them. So this is something that not only Republicans are passing and voting on, but they're actually leading the charge on it. So it's been very exciting and we're well positioned, I think, to see repeal campaigns succeed in both Wyoming and Ohio in the next year or two. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know that is one of the issues that you and I have probably uh, communicated back and forth on the most uh, online is the death penalty and the, and the mental illness. 
aspect of it. So I've been fascinated watching you and your work uh, doing that. So that's fantastic. A couple interesting things um, I took notes on while you were talking. So one, it sounds like you're still, um, as far as your path to liberty, you're still in this uh, period of you'd really like the Republicans to to get back to their roots, but you're kind of moving towards libertarianism and you're you're homeless right now in between the two. Is that a fair assessment of of where you stand right now from a party standpoint? Yeah, I guess so. I think I think more so I just don't really care about parties. I I, I would love to see them absolutely demolished and go away entirely. I'm, I'm more of a fan right. of, you know, ranked choice voting. I think parties are um, a terrible idea. I think we, we've seen our forefathers warn about that and everything they warned about has come to pass. I think, um, you know, while I think the Libertarian Party is, is more attuned to my values and principles than the Republican Party is right now, I'm not under any delusion that if the, the Libertarian Party or any other third party were to gain power, that it too would become corrupted. I think that's the nature of parties. So sure. I'm not somebody who really pins my hope on parties. I, don't, I just don't care. Um, and I don't care as much about elections. I think it's really great to work to get people who are principled elected at the local level. I love what Young Americans for Liberty has been doing. That's been a huge help to me in trying to pass bills. But my focus is on policies. Um, and I think when you take the policy outside of the party, you find you get more support because you remove the tribalism and sort of the knee-jerk reaction for people to fall on one side of the policy or the other. And you can really start to debate the merits of it, right? And, and I think that as a whole, I find I have a ton of commonality with people on the left and on the right about problems that we see in society. You know, we can agree on a lot of really big issues. And then if you really break down the reasons that the problem exists, I think we can come to ways of addressing it that make all sides happy. And that's what we're able to do when we focus on policy at the local level. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. I think, um, and by the way, Young Americans for Liberty are a great uh, friend of the show. We've had both Cliff Maloney and Maggie Anders on uh, at this point. We'll continue to have those folks on. They do a great job. Um, and that's one thing that we've found as well is that when you focus on local issues, sometimes folks don't even know what the, you know, quote unquote, correct answer is for their political party. So they just react to what they actually think the answer should be on a local level, uh, which opens that door for you to gain consensus, you know, because they don't have a playbook in front of them that says, I have to be against this or I have to be for this. When you're out there talking to folks about local issues, what are some of the issues that surprise you um, that do get traction between uh, folks on both sides of the aisle? Well, I mean, certainly criminal justice reform is at the top. And I think that the evidence of that bears out when you look at the results across the country, both nationally and at the state level when it comes to this issue. It's really the one thing that people are coming together on and, and working to pass. So it's um, it's significantly popular. We see that it not only polls really well, but that people are passionate about it. And I think there's something that really resonates um, with this issue with people. I think the age of information and, and kind of the true crime genre of entertainment that's sort of taken off in recent years has really done a lot to inform people and let them see behind the scenes um, how government actually functions. And, you know, for people like you or me who have grown up maybe a bit more immersed in those principles or in that um, history of government, if we come from parents or, or kind of bubbles where that's something that's discussed, that's not quite as surprising to us that the government is corrupt or that it's inefficient or that it you know hurts people. But I think to a large segment of society, that is news. And so when they see these you know TV shows or documentaries or they listen to a podcast about it, it really, something clicks and they recognize that there's a real inherent flaw with government there and we need to work to limit it. And so that's the really exciting thing about criminal justice reform is 
you know, somebody who gets it on criminal justice reform is going to start really getting it on a number of other policies. You just can't. Once your eyes are open to that, um, you're going to see problems with the government in a lot more places. Um, I think the other thing we can really agree on, but that we're misnaming, or at least one part of society is misnaming, is, is cronyism. Cronyism hurts all of us. It's corrupt. It's not free market. It's not capitalism. And the government is practicing it every single day. And so when I hear people on the left attacking corporations, attacking the wealthy, attacking capitalism, if you really dig into what they're attacking and, and have a conversation with them, what you'll usually get is um, a real policy that you can discuss. And then you can kind of start to help them walk it back and see that what they're actually mad at is the result of a government regulation or interference or policy into the market that caused this problem and not actually the economic system itself. And so it's a really great educational opportunity. And I find that they, I get really good responses on that. People don't really care. Um, they're not emotionally attached to their responses. Usually they just, they kind of go to what they know and what they hear other people saying they should do. And, and that's true with criminal justice reform too. I often talk to older lawmakers and they'll say, okay, well, if not this, then what, right? Like that, okay, I'll let it go. We don't have to do the death penalty, but what do we do, right? And they don't have um, the imagination to come up with other solutions. And I think the people who do have that imagination have often been bad messengers. <laughs> um, and I do mean, you know, us in the liberty movement, we've not always been good at elevating our responses. We've been really good at pushing back on bad um, responses to, to problems in society, but not always good at, at lifting other solutions. And so I think we're getting better at that. And I think um, there's a real receptivity to it on the left that I see that is encouraging to me, because if we can start to agree on the root cause of problems, then we can better come up with solutions to address them and work together. And, and that's kind of what my podcast is, is based on. That's why it's called Based, is we're looking at the base cause of things and trying to come to a common understanding of, of issues so that we then can actually formulate better solid responses that we can come together and work on. Yeah, no, that's great. And let's talk a little bit about both of those issues in a little more detail. We, uh, we like uh, to talk about issues that local candidates can take on, therefore that they can go and research and bring into their local runs here in 21 and 22. Um, so criminal justice reform and then cronyism. Let's talk more about criminal justice reform. Uh, obviously this goes well beyond the death penalty. You and I agree on the death penalty. I do believe that um, that as we saw in marijuana, you know, legalization, decriminalization, as that started to pass, uh, more and more states started to pass it as well. And now suddenly, you know, 55% of the country is in favor of it. I believe that same thing is probably happening or has already happened with the death penalty as that spreads throughout the country. Um, but what other parts or aspects of criminal justice reform do you find that the average left and right aren't so far apart on? Yeah, well, like I said, when people ask, you know, if not this, then what? We have a lot of solutions to that. There's so many cool things happening, but they've been happening largely at the local level, even beneath, you know, the state. And and what's happening is community driven, which I think there's a lot to like for people who believe in limited government. There's um, localized control in a lot of these responses. There's the ability to kind of have customizable responses to problems. You know, not all communities are the same. We don't need a one size fits all approach. We need localized control and solutions and we need to give some flexibility in those solutions to local leaders 
Uh, we need private-public partnerships. I don't think this is something where the government's going to come in and solve this on their own. You know, we number one, it's too much to ask of police to solve all of the problems we currently put on their plate. But number two, there are inherent flaws in government and bad incentives that are always going to produce adverse effects. Um, and so I think if you remove some of these things from their plate, we could start to see better results. And, and a big thing for people is understanding um, the, the punitiveness of our justice system. It's, it's very carceral driven approach to violence has not worked and it hasn't worked for decades. It fails. It creates new victims out of family members. It continues to compound the root problems and causes of violence. Instead of actually taking those resources, which are immense, what we spend, we spend about $30,000 a year to incarcerate one person. Um, there's a lot we could be doing with those resources to actually address and figure out um, some of those indicators early on. You know, we have tests like the um, ACE test, which is the adverse childhood effects test that could be given to children early on where we could start to identify um, essentially trauma that they've incurred. We know that trauma is sort of the gateway drug, right? And it's something that leads to all kinds of problems in our society, but especially um, it can lead to violence and, it, and violence can be very cyclical in that nature. We see that most people who do end up in prison or in jail for committing violent offenders were first victims themselves, usually numerous times over. They saw a lot of violence. They were people who had a lot of violence and loss in their families. And that does something, you know, as we progress in science, we're learning what that does to the brain, what it does to cognitive functions um, and how it can lead to an increased um, risk for someone actually perpetrating violence themselves. And so if we were to devote those resources to identifying and intervening um, for people early on when we notice some of these indicators present, I think that we would be able to prevent the escalation of violence in the first place. Um, but secondarily, I think, you know, when violence does occur, and I hope that it, it, we live in a world where one day it becomes much more rare, but when it does occur, there are better things we could do to address violence than simply putting people in jail where they're often continuing to be victimized and brutalized um, and, and removed from their families and removed from um, the safety net of community. I think we could be doing things that really um, fall under the umbrella of restorative justice. And there's immense appetite for restorative justice, especially among victims' families members um, and victims themselves. And so often in my work, I get these sort of uneducated uh, knuckle draggers that come around. They're like, you must, you better go tell this to the victim's families to see what they have to say to you. And I'm like, I work with the victim's families. Who Do you even know any? Like, I work with hundreds of them across this country. They're demanding this. They're pushing this. They're asking for it. Why don't you go talk to them? It doesn't help them to see this person thrown in jail and for them to spend $30,000 a year in their tax dollars to house them. What they actually want are things like mediation. Sometimes they need resources for things like relocation assistance. If they're in a dangerous area, they might need counseling services. They might need assistance with childcare if they've lost a secondary provider. And, and a lot of them want to come up with ways through mediation to work with their offender um, to actually get the actual um, uh, payment or, or other sorts of um, uh, solutions from that offender that have nothing to do with government's involvement. Sometimes they need restitution. Sometimes it's a, a monetary thing, but other times a lot of them find that they need answers or they need um, to be able to forgive that person. And as we work with victims through that process, and it's really pretty incredible to see some of the healing that comes about, some of the actual closure that they get, which they'll often tell you they don't get closure from things like the death penalty. Um, and if lawmakers would listen to these people and, and look at what's happening, there's plenty of programs to that end that are occurring throughout states and communities 
communities, um, even without government involvement all the time, that could be better implemented and, and spread more widely that I think would actually start to address um, real root causes and give people ways to make amends, ways to actually pay their debt to society, and then pathways to move forward. We should focus on things that actually address the offenders um, underlying trauma and what it is that caused them to create violence in the first place. I think a lot of these people could be redeemed, could become productive members of society again if they got the right treatment for their issues. And to that end, there's things like cure violence that is coming in and they're working in really high risk areas. They're working oftentimes with gang members. They're working to have uh, what they call ceasefires where they're bringing people together and, and working to have mediation. And that involves a lot of community actors that involves um, social workers, mental health providers and um, faith leaders and, and a lot of people that are working outside the government apparatus. And I think when you see those kind of levels come together, we see really cool stuff happening. There's a lot of good case studies out of Chicago and Baltimore and um, Newark. Newark is a great example of, of, of a place that has put a lot of these practices um, in in the recent years and they've seen a, a drastic decrease in their crime rate and, and their communities and um, Oakland. So there, there's just really cool, innovative stuff happening that I think lawmakers should be looking into as far as solutions to criminal justice reform. But then, of course, there's, you know, the lower hanging fruit, like I would say, um, things like ending the drug war. That's an obvious first step. You know, you can't um, address mass incarceration if you continue putting people in jail, in prison, ruining their lives, ru ruining their livelihoods for nonviolent offenses like the war on drugs. Um, so that's something that needs to be done away with. I think we need to address sentencing laws. We need to have bail reform. Um, we need to make sure that we don't have barriers in place when people are reentering society that make it harder for them to get a job, make it harder for them to do the right thing. Um, so there's, there's plenty to be done in the criminal justice field. There's, there's no um, end in sight. We've got a massive problem on our hands. We still have well over 2 million people incarcerated in this country. We're still one of the leaders in incarceration in the entire world. We waste billions on this failed system and there's, um, there's endless work to be done and, and there's strong opposition. You know, We have everybody on our side as a whole except for people who actually control the machine in government, which are people like district attorneys and prosecutors associations. And they are um, really staunch opponents that come in and they do they work against our interest on our dime which is another reason I think we should end taxpayer funded lobbying I don't think they should be allowed to do that um, but they come in and they put a lot of pressure on lawmakers to not reform and they fear monger a good bit and they try to um, basically stop a lot of the good work that's being done and, and they do that for the the most mundane reforms like you know, one time I was working on an issue that said people shouldn't lose their driver's license after one year um, if they can't pay all their fees and fines back, right? I mean, who can pay tens of thousands of dollars in fees and fines back in one year working a lower wage job? Very few people. And the solution should not be to take away their driver's license so that they can't get to work. Um, and they oppose that all the way up to the death penalty. So they, they constantly are working against us um, and they're a strong organized opponent. But as a whole, um, there's a lot of people across the uh, across the political aisle and just across the country from various backgrounds willing to get involved on this issue. Yeah, and I think one of the things you mentioned early on in that part of the discussion was um, the difference between how uh, maybe my generation, because I'm older than you and the folks that are coming up now, and your generation and the younger generations view the police and and from a media entertainment standpoint. I remember watching, you know, Law and Order and um, kind of cheering on the cops as they would skirt around, you know, the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment in order to uh, get the bad guy. You know what I mean? And nowadays, these documentaries are coming in place where you actually see um, what the police are potentially doing or have done in certain scenarios um, to skirt around the Constitution uh, and and 
and end up actually getting the wrong person or or sending somebody to jail for an unusually harsh amount of time. Um, so so I think that's interesting too. Do you find people are starting to slowly creep away from the support cops in all um, in all instances and at least start listening to criminal justice reform is not necessarily anti-cop. It's just pro-liberty. Yeah, definitely. We see movement in that direction. And, you know, I was somebody who watched Law and Order SVU religiously and was in the same boat. I actually wrote a piece on it earlier this year about my former crush on Elliot Stabler <laughs> that I now regret. Um, <laughs> I thought he was so tough and hot. And now I'm like, oh, what a creep. <laughs> but I, I definitely think there's a movement. I think that um, as a whole, I think, you know, people recognize that this isn't an anti-cop movement. In fact, this is something I think helps cops, right? We ask them to put them their lives on the line for things that we should never be asking them to put their life on the line over. We ask them to take on way too much. We, we overwork them. We underpay them for that work. And, and I think as a whole, this is a very pro-cop driven movement, right? It's, it's something that I think um, is in defense of cops. You know, good cops want accountability, want transparency. If I'm a good cop, I want a body cam on to make sure that I can't be falsely accused or framed. And so um, I think that that is where a lot of people have moved in in discussing this issue. But I'll tell you what, those who were still on the fence, um, those who did take it as an assault on police, anytime we mentioned reform, they're learning some hard lessons right now with COVID-19 and the lockdowns. I've seen a lot of the back the blue folks all of a sudden recognizing that it's government coming in, it's police, when we say government, coming in and shutting down their business, taking away their livelihood, fining them, we're simply trying to go to work. And so I think there's a wake up call happening for some people. They're going to learn some hard lessons that they could have learned a while back had they listened to reform advocates and some of their black and um, brown brothers and sisters who've been waving the alarm on this for some time. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, let's transition over to um, cronyism because I think this is a fascinating issue that people need to realize how we can talk to folks on both sides of the aisle on. Uh, because to your point, cronyism does not equal capitalism. Um, the things that the left complain about typically are the cronyism aspects of what they view capitalism as. The people on the right are typically defending free market, which has nothing to do with cronyism. So when you're out there talking to folks, trying to get people on both sides of the aisle to open their eyes and, and coalesce and, and agree on this issue. How do you go about making that argument? Well, one of my favorite books um, of all time that I try to reread about once a year is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's a very old book, very simple read, but it's got a lot of great information and wisdom in it. And one of um, Carnegie's lessons is to first find commonality. And you know, it's so simple, but I think we often don't try to do this when we're trying to communicate. We're communicating what we need, what we want, and we're trying to really push that on people instead of, instead of figuring out what do they need, what do they want, and then showing them how our ideas can provide solutions to what they need and what they want. And so um, a lot of it is relationship driven. It's having a conversation with people. And to do that first, you have to know them. So that's an ongoing problem in our society where people don't know people that are different than them. They don't know people who hold different beliefs largely. Um, and so really trying to find people and have a conversation and just let them get to know me and let them get to know um, my heart. I can't tell you how many people I work with on the left by nature of my work who will say, wow, I was kind of nervous to work alongside you. We, I heard we had a conservative coming in and, and you're not racist. 
<laughs> I'll say, no, I'm not racist. Um, or they'll say, I, I was really excited. I texted the rest of the team. I said, she's actually nice. <laughs> Just, you know, really funny things in my opinion, but they've never met a conservative. So they have all these stereotypes, all these like things they're worried about or anticipating. And then I get there and I'm not what they expect. And so I think that that's, that's a foot in the door, right? And then we can sit down and we can have a discussion over wine about, you know, the healthcare problems that our society faces. And they can see that I do, I too care about the healthcare problems that we face. I want people to have good health care. I want people to have widely available health care. I want people to have cheap health care. What I want, though, is to get that done in a way that's going to actually work. And I don't think your ideas are going to get there. And here's why. And here's why I think these ideas would work better. And what I usually find is there's a real openness to have that conversation. And, and once they realize that, oh, she's actually after the same thing as me, the defenses drop. And I think then we can have a more frank, honest conversation and actually maybe get somewhere. It doesn't mean we end up exactly at the same spot, but I think there's an openness to work together that previously wasn't there. And, and they know that like, we're kind of operating on the same team at that point, right? Like we're after the same um, goal. We, we want the same things. So we're going to have to figure out how we can get there in a way that we both agree will work. But that's, that's a place that can really achieve something. Whereas where we're usually coming from is shouting each other down, demonizing each other, fear mongering, providing straw men about what the other side thinks. And it just really compounds the problem and, and creates a, a gridlock where we don't really ever get anything done about the worst things our society deals with. No, I agree completely. That's that's something that I discuss all the time, especially when it comes to libertarianism and conservatism and, and how we can do a better job of, you know, kind of appealing to both sides because the the issue with a lot of it isn't, isn't necessarily that we are wanting vastly different things. We just have very different viewpoints of it. You know, I always, I always like that image of you got two people on either side and there's a there's a six drawn on the ground. And one guy's shouting six and the other guy's shouting nine. Mm -hmm. I 100% believe that that's, 100, that that's the way that it goes with politics and, and with these viewpoints. Everybody kind of has the same goal. They just don't know how to get there um, in their own way. And so they, they demonize the other side because there's nothing that's better. You know, there's nothing that unites people more than a common enemy. And so I think that a lot of the duopoly and stuff like that, they kind of thrive off of that and it creates that negativity. And then like you were saying, you know, once, once you meet somebody from the other side and they're logical and they're not this boogeyman monster that they've been made out to be, it kind of, that whole thing kind of falls apart. You can find some common ground there in the middle. Yeah, that's right. And I think people have to remember that the, the people at the top have every incentive in the world to keep you at each other's throats. They make a lot of money off of that. It's quite profitable for you to hate the other side. The media makes money off of that. You're more likely to click things that make you angry or that confirm your worldview. The politicians make money. You're more likely to fund, give them money when they're fundraising and, and back them if you see them as somebody who's going in and really sticking it to the other side. Um, they, as a whole, they all profit off of this. The people who lose is us. We're the ones that consistently lose out. And so breaking out of that mentality, I think is essential. Yeah, I agree 100%. So talk to us about what it's like being a, a woman in the in this liberty movement, um, <laughs> your experience and on all of that. I'm, I'm really curious to see what it's like, because I know that there aren't a lot of women in the movement. I, I like hearing what it's like for them. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's changing. Um, in my experience, I've been, you know, around the movement since 2012. I remember the first um, Tennessee State Libertarian Party convention I went to was probably around that time. And it was me and, and one woman who was about 30 years my junior, and we were the only women at it. 
I was like, what is going on here? Um, I don't, I don't have that experience as often anymore. I've seen a real growth in the Liberty movement. I've seen a lot of really incredible women step up and lead notably, you know, Joe Jorgensen's entire team on the road was made up of women this year. I think that's really cool. So uh, I do think that's changing and evolving, but it's certainly, um, it's always interesting being a woman in any kind of circle where you're a minority. And, and I think, um, especially early on in the movement, there's, there's a lot to navigate, right? Like you want to be taken seriously. You don't want to be um, sexualized or fetishized a word um, <laughs> as a whole. And so, you know, trying to go in and, and make sure that you command the respect that you want, that you're heard, that you're listened to, um, while not being, you know, over the top and, and no fun and, and prickly is, it's just a balance that I think women are always having to play. And, and they play it in a lot of rooms, not just in politics. And um, I think that's something that maybe a lot of men just aren't aware is something we feel we have to navigate and balance. So there's definitely that aspect, um, but I've not had terrible experiences in the liberty movement as a whole. Um, as a whole, I found that, in fact, there were a lot of men in the liberty movement that have elevated me, elevated my platform, have supported me, have cheered me on. Um, you know, Austin Peterson, Cliff Maloney, um, you know, my friend Brad Palumbo. There, there's some really great guys that I don't think um, without I would have the career that I have. And so I'm really grateful as a whole. Um, I found that I really don't deal with a lot of, of people hitting on me or being inappropriate online. I've commented on that before. You know, I know that's something other women face, so I don't want to demean that or indicate it doesn't happen, but it's just not been my experience. I'm very thankful for that as a whole. I get treated pretty well and pretty respectfully. Um, but I do think at times there is a fight to make your voice heard and to really be seen as a leader. And so um, that's always something that I think women just have to continue to face. We're still early on in women being in the workforce. You know, I think people forget how recent it was that women really started entering this field. And, and we've come a really long way. We have women that are graduating college at higher rates than men these days. They're seeing their pay really increase. They're, they're um, you know, reaching new heights. There's, there's few glass ceilings left for us to shatter. We've got women in all kinds of positions of power. Um, and so we're kind of entering a phase where it's very common to see women in leadership roles, but I do still think there, um, there are certain segments of the population that we have to watch out for that don't like those factors and that um, I, I do think creep into the libertarian movement from time to time. And there's, you know, it's a small subset, but they're vocal who I think are a bit misogynistic and anti-women and, and really belong with the alt-right and not in the liberty movement. So um, I do see some of those things, and I, but I also see a lot of people standing up to, to stomp it out and to push back on it. And um, I think that we've got our ranks uh, rallied in that regard. So I appreciate a lot of the work that I see happening. I appreciate a lot of the men in the movement who have worked to try to make sure it is a, a good space for women, that it's respectful towards women and that we're trying to reach more women. I've seen a lot of um, adaptation and change in the Libertarian Party's messaging, uh, particularly this year. I thought they did a really good job talking about issues that matter to a lot of women, talking about issues around human ethics, around racism in our government, around criminal justice reform, um, and truly having the holistic idea of independent of individual liberty um, and, and protecting the least among us, which is especially people um, who are minorities and who are often mistreated by the government more so than others. I think all people are hurt by bad laws, but we do know that some people are hurt by bad laws more than others. And so I thought that there was really cool messaging coming out. I thought it did a good job reaching new um, constituencies and populations and hope we continue to see more of that. And I think as we do, we'll continue to see more women enter this space and, and take on these leadership roles in, in the movement. Awesome, awesome. Well, it sounds like we're at least making a little bit of progress. So 
Thanks for that viewpoint. Um, we always love having women on and, and talking about that viewpoint because it's such a different one from us. So why don't you tell us where we can find you? Tell us where people can find you. What are you working on? What are you excited about? All that. Yeah, well, I'd love for people to check out the podcast again. It's based with Hannah Cox. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's on YouTube and on my Facebook. Um, I'm available online at Hannah Cox 7 on Twitter, at Hannah Danielle Cox 7 on Facebook. I have public profiles both of those places. So I'm always posting a lot of information and um, and links to my work. I also have a substack, Hannah.cox, um, where people can go if they want to keep up with everything I'm working on. And then, of course, they can also go to fee.org, which is where my the bulk of my writing currently is. We've got some really cool journalists working there. I'm so excited about their vision. And, um, you know, it's one of the few outlets I see really covering the effects of lockdowns, really talking about um, the results of all this government intervention during the pandemic. And uh, I think it's something people are hungry to know more about. So lots of good information there. They should head over and check that out as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Hannah. This was a fantastic episode. I'm excited to drop it here soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. I love being here. I appreciate all your work.